after show on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. A reminder, we're streaming live on Sportsnet 590 The Fan from Monday to Friday between 2 and 3 p.m. However, the show will be off for Wednesday because the Blue Jays are playing a day game taking on the New York Yankees, which I swear the rap or Jays are always taking on either the New York Yankees or uh, I don't know, the Boston Red Sox or some other team in the AL East. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll be curious to tune into that one. Uh, but in the meantime, you got the Raptor show uh, and I'm your host. Well, Lou Alex Wong is taking his mandatory rest day, even though he's getting an additional one this week. And uh, helping me fill that void is uh, Vivek Jacob of Raptors.com, a weekly guest. Big V, what's going on? Nothing much, man. Catching some tennis at the Italian Open. We'll catch some soccer at 3 p.m. to see if your team can uh, keep this title race going. You know how it is. Uh, you know, for banner purposes, this is going to hurt me, but I think I have to say it. There's another chance for Stevie G to, to end Liverpool's uh, <laughs> title chase. All right, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I've already got my Liverpool kit on. I'm ready to watch it at 3 p.m. But in the meantime, we're going to talk with the Toronto Raptors. Um, although I, I did have a tennis question for you, and we'll see you at the very end if we can get to it because I'm, I'm curious about this new guy who, uh, right. who you've been All tweeting right. about. Um, but for today, what I wanted to do with you and also later on this show with Oren Weisfeld is to do a player season in review, starting with the top two players for the Raptors. And for you in the first half, I want to go over Pascal Siakam's season. And the way I want to kind of go about this was I constructed five questions uh, to sort of address, you know, and, and I guess recap the season that was for the players. You and I have each prepared answers to these five questions, and we'll get to the first one here for Pascal Siakam. And I was curious to hear from you, Vivek, what is Pascal Siakam's most important contribution to the team this season? Yeah, so this is uh, a good one because he brought so much to the table. What did he bring? He brought you scoring. He brought you playmaking. He brought you the defense. Um, and he added, uh, you know, leadership as the number one guy this season as well. He always brought like the on court stuff, but we saw more of the off court stuff. What was the most important? It was a toss up between the scoring and the playmaking for me. And I edged towards the scoring just because, uh, the Raptors in general were pretty ISO heavy and no one was able to take advantage of more mismatches than Pascal Siakam um, and his ability to exploit anything that the defense gave him really stood out this season. So I went with the scoring gravity that he brought this season. Yeah, I think that's a good call because I have something very similar, which is just sort of like combining the two, right? When we're talking about a guy who scores that much and a guy who assists that much, uh, especially the way that Pascal does it at his size, I think the mo most important contribution is his emergence this year as one of these like star wing players. Like, um, you know, I, I think when you're thinking about the modern superstar, like that's who you imagine. One of these really, really big ball handlers who can obviously pressure the paint and obviously get their own shot, um, you know, but also set up for other players and, and essentially flirt with the triple-double. And how many times this season did we see Pascal Siakam flirt with that triple-double? I mean, it mm -hmm. literally took him a while. There was that thought that, okay, he got it against Milwaukee, but then they reviewed the tape and took two rebounds away from him. Okay, so that's <laughs> hilarious. But then he got it later on in the year, and he, you know, it became almost a running joke for him. But I think the, the larger thing is just when you're thinking about these big playmaking forwards, right? Um, 
like I think Pascal has really always been trending in this direction, but he's really like got there this season for the first time. And I was looking at this um, in terms of assists. If you just look at the year 2022, right? Because I think obviously him coming back from the shoulder surgery and then him getting his legs back defensively and then him getting COVID. There was a lot of setbacks in the first half of the season, but in 2022, and I think Pascal played every game except for the last game of the season against the Knicks. He averaged 5.8 assists per game, uh, you know, over those four months. And when you compare that to like other big playmaking wings, you got Giannis at 5.8 tied with Pascal. You got Brandon Ingram at 6.3 assists. You got LeBron at 5.9 assists. And you got KD at 7.0. Like you're really seeing Pascal like enter that level, that range. And of course, like there, he's still at the lo- much lower end when you compare it to LeBron or, or KD, but he's now entering that conversation as one of these star wings. And I think when you look at how much the Raptors basically needed another playmaker on offense um, and Pascal doing what he did, I mean, that's got to be his number one contribution. And, and Vivek, that's got to get you really excited for what he might do next season as well. As he, cause, because we've kind of known that he was going to move in this direction pretty much since like 2019. And it's really good to see him like put it all together this year with the potential to keep going. I think that's an important thing that people need to remember here, the potential for him to keep improving, to keep getting better. I think when you look at what he's become now, and obviously the conversation goes to Scotty being 20 years old, Pascal being 28, and we've almost made it this thing where Pascal and Fred are old when they're still young and they can get better. Yeah. And I think Pascal, if you reasonably look at it, I see no reason why he can't, be around this level for another five years and so what can he add to his game here going forward um i don't know if you wanted to get to the next part of this right away in terms of like an off-season focus um because we can just tie that in right here but he was excellent in and around the paint uh the edges of the paint and then now it's about getting more comfortable in that 10 to 16 foot range, that 16 feet to three point line and the three point line. It's about being able to, you know, pull up off the dribble. Those are the things that can now elevate him to another level because we know what he brings defensively. We know how efficient he is right around the basket. He was over 70% uh, within three feet of the basket. He was at 50% in the 3 to 10 foot range. So I think mm-hmm. outside of that is where you want to see that improvement. Yeah, I mean, this is no surprise. And this is sort of the conversation has been similar with Pascal over the years. Is continuing to improve that jump shot, especially the outside shot. And this is something he acknowledged too in his um, end of season press conference. He talked about how he really wants to become a three-level scorer. Right now, he's firmly a two-level scorer. Um you know, sometimes 2.5, I would say. It was just where he tops out at, but definitely not a three-point score just yet, or three-level score just yet because of the three-point shot not being there. Um, but, I mean, that's really the only missing part of his game. Like, I was so impressed with, like, the overall uh, comprehensiveness to the way he attacked. I mean, as you mentioned, he's really good in the paint already. And I think, to me, when, when I'm thinking about the question of, like, the biggest improvement year over year, I think it's just that that, 
point that you just made him getting back to being an elite score in the paint uh, you mentioned 72 percent from zero to three feet 50 percent from three to 10 feet 45 percent from 10 to 16 feet so all that is really good and to even just put it in a different context taking away from the percentages there are only four players in the entire nba who made more two-point field goals this season than pascal siakam it was joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Nikola Jokic and DeMar DeRozan, who was actually the number one in the NBA at two point field goals made. Pascal's mm-hmm. in that conversation, right? Like he's fifth behind those guys. And there's three MVP candidates there. Like the three leading MVP <laughs> candidates are directly ahead of him. So I think that that ability that he has gone back to where he has traditionally been a really efficient finisher. We've seen in years past where the finishing percentages just dipped off for one reason or another. wasn't totally clear why, but he's gotten it back to being super efficient, and we're seeing the dominance in the paint. I, I want to ask you too, like, what was what do you think his biggest improvement year over year was? So, I find this uh, interesting because there this can either tie in with what I have as the most obscure but most important stat, or okay. we can look big picture. And for me, big picture, uh, the biggest improvement was the leadership when Mm, you look at last year the clash he had with nick nurse the uh the game that he had to sit the controversy over being the guy am i really the guy that type of stuff Mm, this year you know he he says at, at media day i i'm not necessarily comfortable with you know being that vocal leader, but I'm going to make the effort and try the best I can. So he's texting young guys over the summer. He's hosting a Halloween party and showing up as McLovin. He's at the 905 (laughs) games. Uh, Gary Trent Jr. at the end of the season is talking about how much he took from Pascal's day-to-day approach. Nick Nurse is talking about how he'd see Pascal, you know, play a 40-minute night dropping 30 and 10, and 8 a.m. the next day, he's back in the gym trying to get better. And so, to me, uh, big picture, that was the biggest improvement year over year. Yeah, I like that. That was actually my secondary point, too, because obviously I prepared to just in case we overlapped. And yeah, I think it's just like he was so calm in the way he approached things, too. Like, even the way he spoke to us in the media, like, I think in the Mm -hmm. past, you know, Pascal would sort of give more shielded, kind of guarded answers and, you know... um, I think this year he's been so much more open and and, and honest and, um, you know, it, it's given, I think, not just media, it's given, like, fans a lot of insight into sort of who he's become. And he's becoming a much more, like, self-assured person, and especially in the public spotlight, becoming more comfortable on that. And it's been great, you know? I, I mean, I, I don't remember a lot of Pascal Siakam podium moments over the years, but this year there was a lot of podium moments, and it almost always involved his... Uh, his niece Maya. Yeah, I mean, you can you talk, about, talk about? about him uh, <laughs> celebrating Cameroon as well. Oh, that, that's all you, man. That's that's all you. <laughs> nah, every single press. Uh, if people don't know this, <laughs> every single um, post game presser, practice presser. You know, I don't know if you want to shoot around to all that stuff, but no, you're always there asking about soccer. And uh, I mean, Cameroon had a good run in the you know in Afcon, so. Yeah, and and the excitement over making it to the World Cup, right? I think that was the most fun mm-hmm. answer yeah. he gave. Um, but even even in that, I noticed a, a little change because I remember uh, the Tampa season one time I asked him, uh, I think it was about 
uh, Real Madrid during the Champions League. And I know that he's been like a Real Madrid fan and this and that. And then I asked him and he's like, oh, I'm just a fan of soccer. I don't really care about, you know, which team necessarily. And he was just very guarded about it. And then to go from that to this answer, to the answers he gave this season, it just showed how much more comfortable he was in literally every setting. Yeah, that's funny because I, I, I've, I've asked Pascal about soccer as well. This was like during the 2019 finals. And they used to have, if you remember, um, I mean, man, finals media is so much different than like day-to-day media. It's actually hilarious. The scale yeah. of it, it was like basically, so normal media would be like, hey, here's a Zoom link, you know, reporters, if you want to come to the press conference, you know, DM us and let us know your attendance. And then you come to the practice facility, there's like 20 seats in there, and then the player walks to the podium and, you know, it's like 15, 20 minutes at most, right? Finals availability, Mm -hmm. they rent out all of Scotiabank Arena, or they don't rent out, they clear all Scotiabank Arena, they set up (laughs) six stands in the middle of the court, uh, and then there's like... There's no attendance or whatever. There's like just 20 cameras and, and 50 reporters around every single player. It's like a convention, really, more than more than it's like an actual press yeah. conference. So I remember going up to Pascal one time uh, during the, uh, the the finals, and I was asking him about soccer and all that stuff. And yeah, he, he told me he's like a big, um, I think he said he was a Chelsea fan as well, mostly because of Didier Drogba. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway, people don't want to hear. I know. I know. Alex is at home right now, stressing the fact that we're somehow talking about soccer <laughs> once again on the Raptor show. This is what happens when you come on. I'm sorry, I just can't resist. Um, yeah. So that was the biggest improvement year of the year: the mentality, the being back to being elite in the paint. Um, what was the biggest play that you that or or moment from Pascal Siakam in your opinion this season? Yeah. So there were a few nominees that I had in here, but mm-hmm. ultimately. I went with the Pascal Siakam double block on Jimmy Butler oh, in that yes. triple overtime classic in Miami. Yeah, I mean, the Jimmy Butler double block, it was huge. It was that triple overtime game, probably the most memorable like regular season game when you think back to this season. And um, yeah, I mean, what a play uh, by Pascal. I think, I mean, that game, he probably played like 50 plus minutes too. Um, and that was a team effort that wasn't just like one guy carried or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, that was an incredible play for me as we work to get Vivek back on the line. Um, I'm going to go with my biggest moment from, or biggest play from Pascal Siakam this season was that Boston game, which on the surface of it, you might say, well, I mean, come on, like, you know, the Celtics rested everybody. There was a whole controversy. It was like, this guy may or may not be vaxxed, all this other stuff. And, um, so they were without four starters for that game. And that was also the first game right after Robert Williams got injured. So when they came to Toronto with like a, a ragtag crew, um, you know, it was not like, I don't know. I guess everyone just expected a, a, a win for the Raptors just based on the results of it. The game itself turned out to be way harder. The Raptors were trailing for most of the game. If you remember, the Celtics were really in a role that, in that moment of the season. And they had won something like... I don't know, 24 of 28 games heading into that game. So even without their main guys, like they were still so good. Plus, I got to say the officiating of that game was one of the most memorable games of the season, just the way the game was being called. It was so heavily in favor of Boston. I still remember that game. Two starters for the Raptors fouled out, including Scotty Barnes, who flowed out on a flop late in the game by Marcus Smart while, you know, he was like trailing around a screen or something like that. I don't know. So very, very petty stuff. But in any case, 
that game, Pascal Second really, really, really had to come through. And not only did he finish with 40, 13, uh, 40 and 13, also with three assists and two steals, but it was the crunch time scoring that you really needed to see from him. And there was a driving spin move over Daniel Tice. Um, there was another drive on Tice where he gets two free throws. That was at the end of regulation. The Raptors were down four in the final minute. Pascal forces OT with those two plays. And then in overtime, he gets uh, Derek White with the spin move, scores there. And then I think probably the most memorable part was him attacking Tice downhill, step back jumper at the free throw line area, knocking it down. And that was essentially the game for the Raptors that night. It was just such a frustrating game. The Raptors are also in still in, in danger potentially of falling into that play-in, and they really need to get that win, and things were not going right for the team in that game. Fred wasn't playing as you know as he wasn't for most of the second half of the season, and uh, Pascal stepping in with that game, you know? It's one of those games I really regret. Like, I think I probably missed like f- six or seven games at home all season. That was one of those games I really regret not going to. V, were you at that game? I was at that game. That was... Uh... Yeah. I was in the booth with Alex and I remember Pascal went to the line for the two free throws to tie the game and Alex was so stressed and I was just like, hey man, positive thoughts, happy thoughts. We're going to keep it positive. He's going to make them. He's going to make them. He's going to make them. And he made them both. Um, And we kept that energy up and Pascal kept that energy up and they got that win. And, you know, the one one game I do want to shout out is uh game five in philly where yeah. that third quarter you know the raptors go into halftime up 13 you knew philly was gonna come out to start the third and try and throw a haymaker and they cut the lead to eight and it was kind of in that stage where it's like hey you need to show some resistance here uh before you know the crowd really gets going and whatnot and pascal hits a step back a mid-range shot. Then he hits the catch and shoot three. Then he hits uh, a tough fadeaway over Tobias Harris. And that just helped settle the nerves, calm the nerves. And that was the type of moment where he kind of recognized, hey, the team needs something from me here. We can't sort of let this momentum shift happen. And to learn that lesson so quickly after what happened in the second half of game three, I think that was another moment that is worth talking about where it's sort of a game in the game moment. Mm, and right. he understood that. Yeah, that was, as you mentioned, I think he had 11 or 12 in that third quarter there. And it was just so, I was, I mean, like literally your life is on the line. Your, your, your season is on the line <laughs> and Pascal is doing all that to hold off the Sixers, which by the way, Sixers looking more and more impressive by the game. I got to say, um, the Heat, even though that series is 2-2, they haven't beat Joel Embiid once. I, I, I'm considering that they're down 0-2 in the series right now, for me, personally. <laughs> um, so for the Raptors to go into Philly in that game, I mean, also the team as a whole, how did they hold the Sixers team to only 88 points? You see the Sixers mm. these days? Like, they score, like, every time down. Anyway, this is not important. I'm sick of talking about the Sixers. I've given them lots of love of late. Uh, but, yeah, I, that's a great that's a great shout. And then last question here. I want to hear an obscure but an important stat about Pascal Siakam this season. So this is where I'm going to go to that 3 to 10 foot range where Pascal shot 38.2% in that range in 2019-20. He shot 42% in 2020-21. 
And now this season, he was able to rise up all the way to 49.8%, pretty much 50%. And this yeah. is where you saw the hook shots, the spinning fade, uh, the running bankers. Uh, those are the types of shots that you saw in that range. And that's basically a career high from that range for him. Uh, and a third of his shots come in that range. So it's a really, really important aspect of his game. Uh, no area of the floor is more important to him. And the other big thing is that it proved sustainable in the playoffs too. In the playoffs, he made 51% mm, right. of his shots in that range. And so you talk about being playoff proof. I think that was a big step for him. Yeah, no, that's a great point because it's not even so much about like the range and, and like the, 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 you know, the area specifically, it's just like that area is Pascal is representative of like so much of Pascal's signature moves, you know? Mm -hmm. And when he is really, really good, that's the area where he's unstoppable. And that's the area where he's able to shoot over the top of the fender, split a double team, you know, spin away from bigger defenders, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, no, that's, that's a great call for me. I also have uh, some shooting numbers. So, Pascal Siakam, my obscure stat for Pascal this year is that he only took 35 pull-up threes all season. And I think this might include a couple of heaves as well. You know, like end of a quarter, whatever, just get one up there, right? So only 35 pull-up threes. Now, why is this important? In 2020, the 2019-2020 season, Pascal took 150 pull-up threes for that season. So we're looking at a five-time decrease um, from two years ago. And you compare it to, so where do some of these shots go? He took 308 mid-range pull-ups this season. So um, Pascal was willing to take the jumper off the dribble. Obviously, it was a secondary choice because of the fact that he was mostly looking to get downhill. But he essentially just traded in a ton of his pull-up threes for pull-up mid-range shots. Now, he does shoot better on the pull-up mid-range shots. He shoots 41%. He's only like 20-something percent on pull-up threes. But I do wonder if he can extend some of that back out beyond the three-point line. And my only ask for that is because on paper, when you're looking at it, you're just going to probably be much more efficient trading mid-range pull-up twos for, for uh, pull-up threes. Now, of course, you need to still maintain your efficiency. Um, but, you know, like 41% on 300-plus mid-range pull-ups is not like the most efficient look, if you really think about it. And mm -hmm. again, I'm just thinking about like how he takes a next step. If he can trade some of those for pull up threes instead, take a couple of feet back, you know, that's when he's really becoming that three point level, three, uh, three level score. But my only fear of that is, you know, I, I hope it doesn't deter him from driving or it cuts off his aggressiveness at any point. Because I think number one for his priority should always be to get into the paint. And obviously, if you can't get into the paint, then that's when you're looking at the pull up jumpers. Um, but in any case, it would be nice if he can mix in that last missing element. All right, V, the last thing I want to ask you about um, is just give me a quick grade on Pascal this season. I didn't really ask you to prepare this, but yeah. since we've done this little evaluation here on the year, um, what's your grade for Pascal this season? I will give him an A. Uh, I think he misses okay. out on the A-plus pretty much solely because of uh, that second half of Game 3. Um I think you know maybe yeah. you could say he could have figured he could have figured out uh, a few more things earlier in the season when his defense struggled, but I think that had more to do with just getting back into action and working his way back. Um, but yeah, if if that second half of game three goes differently, 
there's a chance the Raptors are still in the postseason, and it's unquestionably an A plus season for Pascal. Um, but I will go with an A. How about you? Yeah, I think I'm probably going to the same. I think it's you have to give him an A because of the fact that he's made a lot of improvements. He's gotten much more efficient, as we've highlighted. Um, he's taken his game a step forward. It's not necessarily the weird thing with Pascal is it's not like he's a completely different player. I think that's where when you think about like the narratives around him, it's like he was so bad last year. Now he's so good this year. If you look at the numbers, they're actually not even that different. Um, but I, I think realistically, he's just continued to improve in this path that he's sort of set off on um, becoming the star wing. And this is the year, especially in the second half of the year when he won what player of the month. And, you know, there was like a man, it, month of March was also awesome. And so like that it was just like, mm-hmm. OK, I could see it now. Like I, I can really see you as being that star wing night after night. And if he can do that for the rest of the next season and beyond, I think everyone will be very, very happy in Toronto with Pascal. And I think, honestly, just even that relationship between Raptor fans and also Pascal as a player, I think that has also sort of um, soothed over once again because there was a split uh, based on last season and the bubble. Last thing before we go, and I did tease this earlier. uh, Okay, so can you explain? So what's going on? There's a new tennis phenom, Carlos Alcaraz, 19 years old. In Madrid, beating Djokovic, Nadal, and also Zarev uh, in the final. What's going on with this new tennis phenom? You got a minute. He is incredible, man. Like, this kid has every shot in the book. He has power. He has defense. He has offense. Um, he has composure in the biggest moments. Like, when he was playing Djokovic and Nadal, usually those phases of the match where other guys tense up, he, w- he was just raring to go. Um and yeah, he's 28 and 3 on the year. He's beating everyone that's in his path, including Nadal and Djokovic, as we saw last week. And he turned 19 last week. Like oh, uh, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just phenomenal. And I think tennis has been waiting for that next one, you know, for a long time with Roger and right. Rafa and Novak dominating. It's like, oh, who who is gonna actually challenge these guys? And obviously, you know, these guys are very much at the tail ends of their careers now but uh to have this phenom to follow now is going to be a lot of fun all right so i mean obviously people are going to draw the rafa comparisons are are those valid do you see yeah they're valid okay cool Uh, i mean in terms of what he's doing at such a young age it is i don't think their games are that alike um he does get a lot of topspin which is probably similar to nadal but in terms of you know switching from defense to offense and all of that there's probably more similarities with Djokovic to be honest interesting all right I I think I will tune in to uh the next event I guess I'm probably not going to tune into the Italian Open I'm not going to be I'm not going to pretend I'm going to watch that but no seriously it's French uh, Open man French Open I'll definitely be tuning in all right V thanks for joining us every week on the show and uh, yeah, for us, we're going to take a quick break. I'm your host, Walu. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. When we come back, we will review Fred Van Vliet's season. Stay tuned. Great daily gambling advice from J.D., Blake, and Alish in the Fan Morning Show's Wake and Rake. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on Sports FM 90 The Fan. I'm your host, Will Lou. For the second segment, we will be joined shortly by Oren Weisfeld of Raptors Republic to recap Fred Van Vliet's season. And um, honestly, like, we're going to say this a million times, but 
there were two Freds this year. There was pre-knee injury Fred, and then there was post-knee injury Fred. Happened around the time of the All-Star break. And, you know, that's the hard thing to assess because pre-knee injury Fred was legitimately the best player on the team. Um, most important player was really carrying the team at a time where start of the year, a lot of guys hadn't found their roles just quite yet. I think, you know, you look at a guy like Scotty, he was consistent pretty much throughout. There was a brief period in the season where, you know, I, I think Nick Nurse was saying, well, you know, we're, we're really enjoying him in the Marc Gasol role. And uh, he's he's really only taking like seven or eight shots per game, but we're okay with that. Um, but Scotty was on a consistent all season, right? A force all season. Gary was probably a force all season, really. I mean, he he was kind of up and down, maybe more down towards the end of the year, but realistically, a guy who can always get buckets, who can always catch and shoot, and and, and liable to go off for thirty at any uh, given time. Um, Fred, though, at the start of the season, him being so good at the start really helped carry the team because there was so much confusion, right? Like, Scotty was good. But like Precious wouldn't be good in the starting lineup, and and he was shooting a poor percentage, and Chris Boucher was struggling in his role off the bench, and he had to reinvent himself midway through, and, it, and he got through it. But start of the season, it wasn't really going well. Pascal was obviously out. OG was, you know, I mean that the first two games of the season when OG came out shooting like three of seventeen both times, it was like, damn, okay, this is going to be a struggle for the Raptors, and it wasn't a struggle for the Raptors because Fred was able to hold it down, and so. We got Oren on the line to review Fred's season. And Oren, yeah, so what I was saying is just like, there's two Freds this season, right? We got to be very clear about this. There's there's pre-knee injury Fred and there's post-knee injury Fred. And any conversation that we're going to be having about him, um, we have to make that distinction clear. Don't you agree? No, for sure. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. But uh, I was listening to you and Vivek talk just now, and it's kind of funny because it's like opposite seasons, right? Like Pascal came along kind of second half of the season, played his best basketball, whereas Fred is the opposite. A lot of the stats we're going to reference are like pre-New Year, whereas Pascal is post-New Year. So definitely worth noting and definitely have some stats that are kind of before the knee really started to bother him. Right, for sure. All right, so we have five questions, once again, to answer. Uh, In regards to Fred VanVleet's seasons, I'm going to start with the first one. What was Fred VanVleet's most important contribution to the team? I think like I think it's shooting for me. You could definitely go ahead and say leadership, and, and I would I would be all aboard. I'm all about the intangibles. But just mm-hmm. because we talk about – we always talk about how this team doesn't have enough shooting. They legit have three reliable three-point shooters. And the only reason I think it could work this season to the extent that it did is because those three shooters are not just, like, reliable. They're, like, elite three-point shooters. And at the top of that is Fred, who's, like – one of the best three-point shooters in the league. So just like as raw as it gets, he made the third most amount of threes in the league this season. Um, and it, again, it's especially the first half of the season when that three ball was just going in at a really elite rate for him. There was a there was a point in the season where he was shooting better than 50% from on catch-and-shoot threes, and that was like 35 games into the season. So it wasn't even like a small sample size. He was the best catch-and-shoot shooter in the league when you take into consideration like volume and efficiency. So for me, it's not necessarily because this is what Fred's best skill is, although it probably is as well. It's more so considering the makeup of the roster, considering how few shooters they have, and how desperately needed his spacing is and also his pull-up shooting is. I think shooting is really what kind of the skill that was able to carry the Raptors in that first half of the season when, like you said, 
they were dealing with all these injuries and stuff. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when, when you think about what's so impressive about his catch and shooting is like, there's, I think, two different distinct types of catching and shooting. Um, there's the catch and shoot where you got to, let's say Pascal breaks down the defense at the top of the key, drives into the paint, pulls the second defender over, reads where the second defender is coming from, kicks it out to the guy in the corner. He's standing there ready to shoot, hands ready, feet ready, catches the ball, shoots the ball, makes the three, right? That's one kind of catching and shooting. The other kind of catching and shooting is like, you have the play specifically created for somebody to come around a whole bunch of screens, uh, and then someone's like standing still, triggering the ball at the start of the, at the top of the floor, and then making the right pass. Let's say probably this is probably like half of Draymond's assists, right? Draymond does this a ton with the Warriors, uh, and guys are sort of moving off ball and specifically cutting to get the ball, so that when they get open for a brief second, boom, the pass comes. He catches and shoots. For Fred to be so good and so prolific as a catch-and-shoot player this season, he had to do both. And there's a big distinction there. And I think that uh, for the Raptors, like, you look at, like, probably half their inbound plays, especially baseline out-of-bounds plays, the Raptors would always run Fred going, <laughs> catching the, um, you know, catching the ball uh, in the corner off double screens, usually with the inbound going to somebody in the middle of the floor. Like, there was, you could... It would happen two or three times a game. And, um, yeah, that's that's huge. For me, like, I mean, I already kind of teased it, but really it was just his main contribution to the team was keeping the team afloat at the first half of the season. I mean, when you look at it, the first report of knee soreness for Fev Vliet occurred on January 25th. He missed that game against Charlotte. The Raptors ended up winning. And then he missed the next game against Chicago as well. This was a back-to-back. He sat out both games. Um, before that point, he was averaging 20 points Per, or 22 points per game, five rebounds, seven assists, 1.7 steals, shooting 42% from the field, which is, you know, it's fine for a small guard, but most importantly, shooting 39.3% from deep on 10 three-point attempts per game. That's outrageous. You know, like, that that was, like, up there with any of the best, like, half of a season that, like, let's say a Kyle Lowry played as a point guard in Toronto or any other point guard in Raptors history. Of course, after that, it was really downhill because of the knee injuries. But first half of the season, he really carried it. And it's just such a shame that the, the knee was bothering him to the degree where you could see when he came back, he just was never fully 100%. And Orrin, I mean, like, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I know yeah. I know, Fred faces tons of criticism, um, especially from certain sections of the fan base uh, about his play. But I think any sort of fair evaluation has to sort of hinge on that specific inflection point in the season for sure and we'll get into this at the end um but like it's all about what were the expectations coming into the season and and what the context of this season was and when you consider that i think fred had an unbelievable season like this team was not supposed to be championship contenders they were just supposed to get into the playoffs and yeah he he whittled down as the season went on no doubt but he kept them afloat, like you said, when Pascal was out, when the young players literally didn't know where to stand in the half court. Like, <laughs> Fred kept them alive yeah. during these stretches, like you said, with with really, like, shooting 10 threes a game, 40%, and, and just, like, being that scorer and facilitator and, and defender, which we'll get into. But to your point about, like, how much running Fred does and, and how the degree of difficulty of these threes is not easy. First of all, we know that he's not just taking – shots from the corners like most of his threes are above the break and not just that they're mostly like several steps out because he just needs that extra room because of how short he is 
But also when he was named an all-star, he was he led the league in distance traveled. So mm-hmm. to your point, uh, like he was running around to get these threes off. Yeah. And I mean, again, to that point, I mean, the, 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 the phase that I mentioned pre knee um, injury, Fred, he had played 41 out of a possible 44 games up until that point, averaging a league high 38 minutes per game. The, two of the three missed games were because of COVID. And the other one missed game was after he hit that game winner against uh, Philly and he did the big onion stance. <laughs> he literally was out the next night. <laughs> With the Goran Dragic started, and we lost to the Pistons. So anyway, let's move on from that. Um, So Fred's biggest improvement year over year, Oren, what was that for you? This one, I think, is difficult out of the questions you gave me just because when I look at Fred's season, um, the biggest improvement was really like he had the opportunity for the first time to show everything he was capable of, like – every single skill set he had. And it was very reminiscent of Kyle Lowry where he would kind of take over games doing whatever the Raptors needed him to do. So every night it really could change. And that's why, like, it's hard to pinpoint one specific improvement and say, like, this is what made Fred a better player. I think opportunity was just huge for him to show all of these little skills he's been building up over his career, finally got to showcase them. But I went with kind of just, his his efficiency within the arc because mm. it's not going to blow you away these numbers but when you consider the lack of spacing that the Raptors were dealing with when you consider that the degree of difficulty of his shots was harder than it's ever been in his career you know more unassisted shots than ever more mid-range shots than ever his two-point percentage actually went up from last season 41 to 44 percent which again not going to blow you away but it's actually not bad for what, a 5'11 point guard. You know, 44% inside the arc is not bad. And then inside the mid-range, his efficiency also went up. At the rim, his efficiency also went up. Even though he was getting to the rim less, he was shooting more ra- mid-range shots. Like, for most players, that's not a recipe for success. But as we know with Fred, often when we look at last season, he would get to the rim and he would just get blocked. And then they would go the other way for a transition opportunity. I think his shot selection got better when if he did go to the rim, it was because he actually had a chance to finish at the rim. And if he did shoot in the mid-range, it was because the big really did drop back deep into the paint and he had enough room to get a good shot off. So I think inside the arc, his his selection of shots and just the touch he showed is a pretty big deal. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, that's exactly what I was going to say too, was the, the shot selection, which is interesting because, I think we can all agree, though, Fred's shot selection overall does look pretty wild. But his, his like, uh, forcing shots mostly comes from beyond the arc, which, honestly, I do think mm-hmm. it's because of a couple of things. Number one, there's just not a lot of shooting on the team. Number two, he's a really, really efficient shooter and a really capable shooter of making these tough shots from beyond the arc. And also, just, like, if you're going to jack some shots, you might as well jack some threes. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're down bad and you really need some offense... At least, the th- obviously, you, there's more of a reward with the three. But the overall shot selection, I think, inside the arc, I think, does make a lot of sense to me because when you, as you mentioned, like his efficiency at, you know, between zero and three feet, it's the highest it's ever been for him, just period. Like he came into this league essentially shooting like between 50 and 55% from within zero to three feet, which is terrible. Like just objectively terrible, right? This the year, numbers bumped- right there. Oh, come on, man. No, that's that's <laughs> sorry, first half sorry. season of Precious. Uh, yeah, second, um, th- th- this season, 
he shot 65% at the rim between zero and three feet. And it's not like necessarily, oh, he's like improved dramatically as a finisher. It's, it's what you mentioned. It's the shot selection that's changed because he only took 8.6% of his shots this season from zero to three feet, which is kind of amazing when you consider the fact that two seasons ago, he was shooting 31% of all of his shots. All of his field goal attempts were from zero to three feet. This year, it went down to only 8%, which really means that he was only taking the good shots that were there, countering, as you mentioned, with the mid-range shooting. And um, I, I mean, I, I think ultimately, this is a, a, a something where we can get to it in the offseason focus. I think I want to see my point guard attempt more than 8% of all of his shots at the at the rim. However, the the overall shot selection did lead to a more efficient outcome. So it's really just about sort of continuing to manage that rate while also getting him more attempts. Um, moving on to the biggest play or moment of the season for Fred Evley, Orn, who you got? Just to finish the last point, we talk a lot about spacing when it comes to Siakam, how more spacing will help him get into the paint and, and finish better there. I think the same can be said about Fred. Like, oh, There's a fair yeah, argument that people make where he does jack up too many shots, but some of that is because there's not a whole lot to work with, and he has the ball, and he has to shoot because the shot clock's winding down. But, um, okay, moving on. This one, yeah, again, like, because his season tailed off so much at the end, it was hard to pick, like, a really important moment other than maybe, like, some of those defense had towards the end where even with the knee injury were pretty inspiring. But I ultimately went with January 7th versus the Utah Jazz. And this was one of the oh, weirdest yeah. games of the season. I don't know if you remember this. The, the Jazz were in heavy COVID just mess. They started Trent Forrest, Elijah Hughes, and Jared Butler, along with, I think, Whiteside and someone else. So it was like everyone was going into the game being like, okay, easy win. Let's get the starters some rest because already the Fred minutes were becoming a problem. <laughs> the Jazz end up leading by like 11 <laughs> at halftime. With just the Raptors came out completely flat. Like they didn't take the game seriously at all. They were playing in Scotiabank in an empty arena because of COVID. And it was, everyone was really mad. And then basically Fred was just like, you know what? No more. I'm not passing anymore. Like I'm taking over. And he put up 37 first triple double of his career. He had eight made threes in that game. And I guess it was a big moment because even though the game didn't really matter, it was Fred being like, for the first time, really like, okay, this, he was kind of the guy in a sense where it was like, okay, no one has it. These guys aren't taking it seriously tonight. I'm taking a bunch of shots and I'm like willing us to a win tonight. And he did that. And that was the start of, of a six game winning streak for the Raptors or is in the middle of it. And during that winning streak, another step, Fred became the first Raptor since Kawhi to score 30 in three straight games. So it was really like the hottest stretch of his career, but he just like turned it up during a, against a really bad jazz team. And it, it was a fun game. Yeah, no, that's also the game I had mentioned, too, because, um, man, he had 17 straight points in the third quarter. He yeah. also played just, like, one of the best quarters of any player in franchise history. Um, there's a lot of competition. I think Kyle Lowry's 30-point comeback, the fourth quarter there was, I think, still number one for me. But Fred, 24 points on 8 of 8 shooting from the field in that quarter, 17 straight. I've lost count of the number of times Matt Devlin said, Freddie All-Star in that stretch, too. I mean, it was... Right. I mean, it was it was really cool. I mean, look, individual games and moments. There's just so many for him. It's not just just not that one standout, the one that you can really always point to. I thought, you know, like him outplaying Drew Holiday in the first game where the Raptors beat Milwaukee was really cool to me. 
Um, him hitting the game winner against Philly was really cool to me. Him beating Washington and hitting a one jumper was really cool to me. Uh, the game where he made All Star also in an empty arena that was against uh, Demar and the Bulls. The, the Raptors ended up winning that game in, in overtime, but that was a really cool moment for him as well. And uh, yeah, it just it just sucks that he wasn't you know 100 percent for the rest of the season because. There could have been more for Fred. The season was really about Fred before it really became all about Pascal, but that's okay. Um, last two things here. Uh, Fred Van Vliet, the most obscure but also most important stat. Yeah, okay. So mine isn't very obscure, so I'm going to give you two. The first is obscure and the second is important. But the obscure one I mentioned kind of, but he shot 50% on catch-and-shoot threes. I think it was about four games, 35 games into the season. So mm-hmm. that was just the most insane stat that I remember about Fred's career. You just shouldn't be able to hit 50% of your threes. Um, and then the most important one, I think, just given the dialogue around Fred right now, because there's, there's like this narrative out there that the Raptors are better on defense without Fred or that the bigger that they go, generally speaking, the better they're going to be on defense. I think a lot of people think that based on the way the Philly season went, series went. Mm-hmm. And yeah. obviously people know that like Fred had knee injuries in that series and he wasn't himself. But I think that's like a really, really bad way to look at it because Fred was like – just looking at the numbers, and I'm not saying you should go off numbers with defense completely, but just looking at the numbers, Fred was their most important uh, defender this se- se- season, including like the knee injury, right? So even all 82 games, he was still their most important defender. But then if you go back and you kind of just filter it to like, okay, before the knee injury, what was Fred doing on defense? The team had a defensive rating of 106.8 with him on the floor up until January 31st, which would have been the fifth best defense in the league, while the Raptors at the time were the 16th best defense in the league. And given how much Fred was playing, that just means they I was going to say, that's awful. 40 minutes a game of top five exactly. defense. <laughs> exactly. That means okay. in those eight minutes, okay. the Raptors were like god-awful <laughs> without him. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, they were 2.9 points better per 100 possessions with him on the floor up until that point in the season. And even until the end of the season, they were still, I think, 2.7 points better. So, like, when you look at plus, minus, and net rating, Pascal is at the top of this team, but that's primarily because offensively they're a lot better with Pascal on the floor. Fred is the one who, who's really carrying them defensively. Like, Thad Young and Chris Boucher are also up there, but obviously way less minutes, way less responsibility. So I just think it's important for Raptors fans to remember over the course of the season, Fred really was maybe their best defender. Yeah, and and I mean, first off, that's very important. I'm happy you said this. Um, I think, too, is just like playoffs are about matchups. Um, and when you have 6-9 guys, they're like matchup proof. So you're never going to be looking at those guys to be uh, issues for you. However, as you mentioned, Fred was very important. There's other aspects of defense. And, for example, just with Fred, like, He's led the league in turnovers now for three straight years. This is not advanced stats. It's not like, oh, he's really good at, you know, defensive Raptor or D LeBron or all this other random stuff. Like, this is basic stuff. He's led the league in turnovers forced for three seasons running. He was at 3.0 turnovers forced per game this season. Just think about that. And so many of those are live ball turnovers. He was also second in the league in deflections at 3.9 per game. So, you know, like Fred... We know this about Fred, but uh, there's a reason why the advanced studs always love Fred, and it's largely because he forces turnovers, and turnovers are huge, too. The way the Raptors want to play. Last thing, we got about a minute left. 
off-season focus for Fred VanVleet. Orin, what you got? Okay, so I think I want him to have more of that, like, point guard, pure point guard mindset where when you look at, like, the Chris Pauls and the Kyle Lowry's of the league, they know how to really get their teammates involved at, at the right time and in the right ways. And I think Fred has really mastered the balance now of, like, his own creation with his own scoring. And I think the next step is now, like, okay, how do I get this player who just came in the game and missed two shots a good shot so he can see the ball get go down? How do I get this mm. big in a pick and roll so that now he's, he's more active defensively because he got a dunk? And, you know, how do I get, say, OG hit two threes? How do I get OG the ball in a spot where he can keep shooting? Because rather than just giving the ball to OG and saying, okay, go ISO. Because I think the Raptors do pick out guys who have the hot hands, but they just kind of tell them to ISO rather than, like, let's actually run a play to get OG the ball in the corner for a shot. So I think, like, I don't know how to put that into words, but I think he, he has to kind of improve the way he manages a game with, with getting his teammates involved in the right spots. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, honestly, Nick could probably help him with that as well, maybe running a couple more set plays. Um, for me, lastly, just get yeah. healthy, Fred. Like, I think he, what he was doing this season was already really good. If he gets healthy, I think, I'm, I think no one's complaining. So thank you to Oren for joining us on the show. That does it for us today. I've been your host, Will Lou. And you have been listening to The Raptor Show on Sportsnet. I'm 90 to fan. Thanks again to Vivek and Oren and our board producer, Derek Brandale. I'll talk to you soon. We're off Wednesday, by the way.